Social connection is important for everyone, not just people who are isolated or lonely. We all need to take care of our social well-being and ensure that we are connected in our relationships and in our communities. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome everybody to At Home On Air, conversations that matter for the quality of our experiences of later life. I am Susie Stadler. I'm an architect, but also the executive director of At Home With Growing Older. And I'm pleased today to welcome Casley Killam. Casley lived in 10 different cities before turning 30, quite an achievement. And it taught her the art and work of forging new friendships and building community. She decided to focus her career on battling the growing epidemic of loneliness in America and launched social health labs, which work to improve social well-being in individuals, communities, and organizations. Casley recently concluded an eight-month series of conversations about loneliness and connection with different stakeholders from healthcare, education, government, technology, and other disciplines. And we will talk a little bit about her insights from this eight-month conversation. So new and old ways to connect for our happiness and health. What a great topic. Let's jump in. This startup you founded, Social Health Lab, is really dedicated to combating loneliness where did this vision start and what have you learned from it since you founded it? Yeah, well, Social Health Labs is a nonprofit initiative and it's, it's quite new. I founded it in 2020. And, you know, combating loneliness is one piece of what we're trying to do, but the broader piece is to promote social well-being. And that might seem like two sides of the same coin, but I think it's an important distinction because social connection is important for everyone, not just people who are isolated or lonely. And we all need to take care of our social well-being and ensure that we are connected in our relationships and in our communities. My background is in research originally, and so I was really struck early on in my career by all the data and literature showing how important human connection is for health, for mortality, for cardiovascular disease, for depression, and so on. And I've always been fascinated by people, even when I was a child, I remember being on the playground kind of observing and watching how people interacted and trying to make sense of people's emotions and understand why we do what we do. And so I studied psychology as an undergrad and was fascinated by that and got into research on empathy and compassion and kindness. It kind of opened this portal into this world of all this literature showing how important relationships are. And that kind of set off my career 
But also, like you said, Susie, I've moved around quite a few times. And what that meant is that in different countries and different cities, I've experienced different norms around how people build community and, and build relationships. And I've also had to figure it out for myself, right? Creating new friendship groups everywhere I've gone, staying in touch with friends and family from afar, things like that. And so it's kind of been this recurring theme in my personal life and through my professional work of, you know, just recognizing that relationships are so core to who we are, to our ability to survive and thrive as humans. So yeah, social health labs came out of the pandemic, but really I've been focused on this kind of work for a long time. The pandemic sort of crystallized it in a way for you, I assume. Well, yes and no. I mean, I started out doing research. I created an app 10 years ago now that was designed to take scientific insights about human connection and turn them into actionable things that people could do to deepen their relationships. I led community engagement at a large organization, which was all about building community and bringing people together around a shared mission and cause. When I started hearing about loneliness in the media and in the research and how some people called it a loneliness epidemic and it seemed to be this big issue, it just kind of married what I was really passionate about and what I'd been studying and building initiatives around with a real world problem and, and an issue that seemed really prevalent and salient. I actually went to grad school to do a master's in public health focused on loneliness and on connection and how we could look at that issue through the lens of public health before COVID struck and graduated from that program into the pandemic. So certainly the pandemic has kind of catalyzed the amount of work going on in this space, the amount of innovative solutions that are being developed, and just generally the amount of attention that this issue is getting. But there are quite a few of us who were focused on this for a while before that, and it's shown a light on it now. It's tragic that we need that light to be shown on it, but at the same time, it's exciting to see all the innovation that's happening around that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was just thinking loneliness always existed, but it's something you just didn't talk about. And now there is maybe more of it, maybe not. We just don't really know. But now it's part of our awareness and recognized as something which is really a contributor to a healthy life, you know, being socially connected. Absolutely. You said loneliness has always been around. It's important to note loneliness itself isn't a bad thing, right? Hunger isn't a bad thing as long as you eat. It's just a cue from your brain and your body to say, hey, you need something that you're not getting enough of, right? So when you're hungry, you eat to satiate that. Similarly, when you're lonely, that's just your body saying, hey, you need some connection. You need to reach out and feel connected. And so that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. That's just a normal response. It's actually quite adaptive. We rely on each other to survive as a species, but it's when it becomes chronic and long lasting and people's norm rather than the exception that that's really when it becomes an issue. And Susie, you mentioned, you know, whether or not it's gotten worse or not. And I think the research is really interesting in this arena. Social scientists like me and many others, when the pandemic first struck and we were all isolated and by ourselves for extended periods of time, many of us thought, oh gosh, this is only going to worsen the already high prevalence rates of loneliness, but the research is much more nuanced and I think a little bit more complicated than that. Certainly there has been data coming out in the last couple of years 
suggesting that people are more lonely. There was a study at UCSF that found that 54% of older adults reported worse loneliness because of the pandemic. There was a study by AARP that found that 73% of people over the age of 50 said they had a harder time connecting with friends. And actually, I think it was 78% of people aged 18 to 34 who said that. In other words, Younger generations are actually having a harder time connecting with their friends than older generations, which I think is surprising to many and and surprising to me. We kind of assume that because there's a digital divide and perhaps there's some blockages there that older adults are going to be less connected, but that's not always the case. There are other studies too showing that loneliness has gotten worse. There was one global one that found that 6% of people around the world said they were severely lonely prior to the pandemic. And now 21% of them say they are severely lonely. So certainly there are some indications that that's true. However, there is also a lot of research suggesting that people are actually less lonely in some cases. And I think what's interesting is it kind of depends on the sample that you look at. It depends also on the research methods that were used. So that one that was global and looked at people around the world was just a cross-sectional study design, which means that they just asked people at one moment in time, how lonely are you now? And how lonely do you remember being, you know, prior to the pandemic? Well, unfortunately, we're all very bad at remembering how we used to feel. We think we're good at it, but research shows we're not actually good at recalling that. So when you look at the studies that followed the same cohort of people before the pandemic, and then during the pandemic and ask them about loneliness over that course at different time points, the research suggests that people's levels of loneliness actually have stayed the same. And I wrote a piece on this in a scientific American, which is really interesting. And there's other data to suggest that as well. I recently gave a talk for a consortium of different schools and was looking at some of the data on kids. And in California specifically, they evaluate each year children's levels of caring relationships and their sense of connectedness at school. And those levels have stayed roughly the same since 2019 and now into the pandemic. So it's nuanced, right? All of that is to say that whether loneliness has gone up or down during the pandemic, it really differs for everyone. But I do think in a lot of instances, it has made people more intentional and more appreciative of their relationships. And so therefore they actually feel more supported and are more to one another. It's going to be really interesting to see how that shapes in the years to come as well. Yes. And how it shapes out across generations. No? Absolutely. Yeah. Some countries where the demographics have a huge percentage of older adults like Japan and also maybe not for this exact reason, but also UK have formed a ministry of loneliness. And I always think this is rather odd to have a ministry of loneliness because who wants to sort of qualify as a lonely person? And I'm just curious if you think that the US should also have a ministry of loneliness or if there should be other incentives or ways to help people stay connected rather than have a ministry of loneliness. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it was in 2018 that the UK appointed a minister of loneliness and then Japan followed suit just last year. There are pros and cons to this approach. The pros are, first of all, that it validates that this is an issue worth addressing, right? It's giving acknowledgement, the fact that many people do feel lonely and that it has all these detrimental effects for people's health. And so that's valuable in and of itself, right? When the government says, hey, this is an issue that raises the awareness among a large group of people. Another pro is that means 
allocating resources to it and dedicating funding and people and other resources to address it and move forward solutions. And that's valuable as well. But I think there are cons as well. And one that you alluded to, Susie, is this focus on loneliness, which is negative. It's very deficit focused, right? It's putting all the attention on what people are lacking. And I think there's real power in reframing the conversation and shifting to focus on positives and on assets. Again, because human connection and relationships and community are important for everyone, not just people who are isolated or lonely. Even among people who are not isolated or lonely, we have problems of polarization and of intergroup conflict and of discrimination and other issues where it's human connection at the core of that that's fractured and that we need to work on. So I think, you know, reframing the role to be the minister of community or the minister of social health, and social health is the term that I use to mean our well-being that comes from connection and community. So where physical health is about our bodies and mental health is about our minds, social health is about our relationships. So some kind of framing like that, where it's really focused on more of the assets that we can build up. What that does is it opens up the possibilities for the ways that we can do that. We're not just stuck creatively and thinking about how to reduce isolation and loneliness. We can expand beyond that and think about creative ways to promote community and it also opens up the conversation for everyone, including people who are not lonely. I think the other con of having a minister of loneliness is that that kind of keeps the issue very siloed in itself, right? It's saying loneliness is this thing that's separate from all these other issues. And that's just not true. Loneliness comes from many different sources. It comes from the choices I make every day, whether or not to engage with other people and how I do so. But it also comes from the neighborhood around me and whether or not I feel safe leaving my house or whether or not I have access to transportation so that I can get to other people to spend time with other people in person. Loneliness comes from the organizations that I interact with, whether that's my school, if my school feels inclusive and connected, or my workplace, if that is a place where I feel safe and have good relationships with people. Loneliness also comes from the policies in place that influence things like parental leave after you give birth, or whether there are public spaces to gather, right? So we really need to understand this issue, not just as the siloed thing that happens to people separate of everything else, it's really embedded in our culture and the way things are set up. There's value in having government efforts that look at connection across issues through the lens of mental health, through the lens of the infrastructure bill, thinking about how that can fuel stronger communities and so on. There are both pros and cons to this approach, and it's still kind of emerging whether those ministers of loneliness in the UK and Japan, what has come of that. So it'll be interesting to see. But I think if we're going to do anything like that here in the U.S., we need to frame it a little bit differently. Yeah, it's actually a really effective way to frame it in terms of health and social health. So maybe it should be, you know, a ministry of social health or a department of social health. And like you pointed at a really interdisciplinary effort and agenda. Absolutely. It takes all of us to kind of create a culture where we have the conditions for people to connect in meaningful ways and where loneliness is not the norm. It takes action among all of us as individuals, but also in the organizations that we belong to, that we work for, that we lead, and in every sector of society. So you are on the board of a great San Francisco community organizing force, the Community Living Campaign. 
And to me, this is a wonderful example of grassroots efforts to connecting people in their neighborhoods. And I'm just curious, the conversations you had over this last eight months, if there were other efforts you have seen in a similar vein, which really taps into the resources of the community and activates them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so those who, who aren't familiar, the Community Living Campaign is a nonprofit in San Francisco that leads initiatives to build community and, and connection among older adults and people with disabilities. And I've been involved for four years now, and we have many wonderful programs, one of which perhaps my favorite is called Community Connectors. And essentially in each neighborhood, there's a person who is the community connector who brings together that neighborhood and creates events and programming and all kinds of opportunities and outreach to make sure that everyone feels connected. And we've just seen incredible impact. I mean, I feel so lucky to be part of this organization and, and to have seen the impact that we have and that those community connectors have. As a result of that program, 84% of our participants know more neighbors who they feel comfortable reaching out to. 93% feel less isolated. I think 100% feel more engaged in their community. So it's tangible results that we see as a result of that. And it all started in a very grassroots way. Marie Jobling, the founder, was on our board and has been part of our community from the very beginning. I consider her a huge mentor and I'm incredibly grateful to her. She's an amazing leader. So I think to answer your question, have I seen other initiatives like that? Yes, absolutely. I'm in a position now where I work with organizations across the country and around the world, in fact, as well. And it's really inspiring to see the number of organizations who have programs like that and have had them for a long time, by the way. There are new ones as well. There are lots of startups coming up in this space, lots of new technology apps and things like that. But there are also many, many nonprofits and other community organizations that run programs like that in just about every city and neighborhood in the country, as far as I can tell. And I think that now they are getting more recognition and more funding opportunities in some cases and more validation of the need that there is to continue programs like that. So I think they only stand to grow in the years to come. Are you building like a huge database of all these organizations? So there is a federal initiative underway right now called Commit to Connect, which is building out what they call a clearinghouse, which is a sort of database that will be searchable where people can go to find interventions or programs in their local communities that address isolation and loneliness and different opportunities for social engagement. So that's underway. They started the whole program with a competition, inviting people to apply to kind of build out that clearinghouse. And I was a judge for that competition. That was now a little over a year ago, I guess. They're slowly building that out. But yes, that is underway. And that's called Commit to Connect. And is this like government funded? It's the Administration for Community Living, part of the federal government. An important related question, what have you learned or what have you seen what each of us can do for ourselves and for others to combat loneliness and to contribute to social connections? It might seem like, why do we even have to ask these questions? But I am curious, you know, about specifics you have found out maybe through these conversations you had. 
where to begin? <laughs> there are many. And I think that's the good news is that each of us has true agency and has options to become more connected if we desire, if there is a gap between the social health that we want and the social health that we're currently experiencing. I think there are interesting insights or kind of rules of thumb that we can draw from the research. For example, Three seems to be a magical number where if you have three or more kind of close friends, you're more likely to be happy and feel connected than if you have two or fewer friends. And that's kind of consistent with a lot of research showing that quality is more important than quantity. So people who have high satisfaction with their social lives are happier than people who have a large social network. So it really is about quality over quantity, but having more than a couple, you know, a few people you can really reach out to and, and rely on and, and seek support from and have that be mutual. There are also other kind of tips in the research. Things like talking on the phone for 10 minutes a few times a week can be enough to really lower people's levels of loneliness. That came from a study last year, which I think is just powerful because to see meaningful and significant changes in loneliness from such a simple action, just a 10 minute phone call a few times a week, we can all make time to do that. And so I I think that's really powerful in that it really says we can all do something. But then there are more powerful ways, right? So the way I like to talk about social health is that social health comes from our one-on-one -on -one relationships with friends, with family, but it also comes from a broader sense of feeling connected to a community or to larger groups where we have a sense of belonging, which could be our neighborhood, it could be our workplace, things like that. And so volunteering is a tried and tested true way to reduce loneliness and feel more connected in a really meaningful way. Volunteering in the community brings a sense of purpose and meaning. And we know that loneliness is associated with a lack of purpose and meaning. And it's a great way to just make new friends and, and feel connected to something that's a little bit bigger than you. The insights that have come out of the series, the Connect Plus Conversation series, which we will be releasing a report on in the next couple of weeks, they've really focused on all different sectors. So we've looked at, for example, healthcare, technology, education. What are the roles of each of those sectors in creating a more socially connected society and in creating the conditions for social health? And so we, in the report that we'll be releasing, have recommendations for people who work in each of those sectors. So if you're a doctor, you might want to consider social prescribing, which is where you actually screen for loneliness in doctor's visits among your patients. If you are a technologist, you might want to think about some of the recommendations that we have for designing your apps and your products in ways that are more conducive to meaningful connection rather than just kind of superficial likes or retweets or things like that. If you're an architect, there's all kinds of literature on how to design for more meaningful human connection in buildings, in cities cities, and so on. The bottom line from that series of conversations is that there's a role for each of us to play in our professional lives and in our personal lives. How are you going to publish this report? How can we see it? It'll be available on the Social Health Labs website. So if you go to socialhealthlabs.com, you can sign up to get notified when we go live with that, and it'll be available for download there as well. So this report was a huge effort, a huge undertaking. What's next after that? How are you going to help organizations to put this into action? What are you hoping to do next 
To your point, we don't want the conversations to end there. And so I partner with a lot of different organizations to put insights like that into action and to help support innovative programs and initiatives that are aiming to serve different communities, whether that's within a certain geographic location, whether that's within an office or workplace, that's certainly something that I do. I also have a couple projects up my sleeve that I can't reveal yet, but that I'm really excited to share in the months to come. So stay tuned. Another project I'm working on right now that I'm really passionate about is the Massachusetts Task Force to End Loneliness and Build Community. And we actually just launched our new website. It's at endlonelinessma.com. And we do a number of different initiatives within the state of Massachusetts with local governments, with local nonprofits, with local schools to really create a more socially connected community. And one of our focus areas this year is on creating more socially connected spaces. So right up your alley, Susie, through chat benches, through other programs and workshops with local community members to design spaces that allow for greater connection. So more to come, but that's a teaser. Connection as part of the design process should be the key, the main design principle around projects and city planning. Hopefully this might be one of the outcomes from this pandemic and the division we live in that people are motivated to create these connections. are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Rachel asks, wondering how this coincides with creating connection purpose for older adults, particularly in care facilities. Was this part of your study too? Yeah, this wasn't exactly part of the series, but this is definitely something I've focused on in other work. Interestingly, I think it was an early... 2021, where I wrote a letter to the editor in the New York Times about specifically this issue about care facilities and the fact that older adults were completely not allowed to have any visitors whatsoever during the pandemic and how detrimental that was to their physical, mental, and social health. And I believe the legislation that I was responding to actually was passed, which changed the rules and allowed for visitation in a COVID safe way. Not to say that I'm responsible for that changing, but hopefully I I added something to the conversation. Was this in a specific state? That was in New York. Yeah, that specific piece of legislation. But I was commenting more broadly on just how horrible it was to be truly in almost prison-like isolation. So I think that's been a huge issue. You know, throughout the pandemic, especially coming from a public health background, it's been really interesting to think about this tension between needing physical separation to not pass on COVID, but also needing emotional closeness to ensure that people feel connected and feel supported and don't feel lonely because we know that that exacerbates bad health outcomes. So it's just a really sensitive issue. And I think the public health field in general hasn't done a good job of delineating that. Yes. And it's the follow-up racial comment. Even COVID aside, it seems we need new ideas on how to help people feel connected with each other and with the outside community. I totally agree. And I sometimes feel there's a role for sort of community ambassador on a big scale. Maybe that should be like an army of elders who become community <laughs> 
connect us because I think sometimes you're treated with more leniency and you're not treated as being completely weird when you start a conversation as an elder with a stranger. So maybe the elder bonus can be used for this. Who knows? Deborah says, I'm interested in place-based building and community design, biophilic design, design for well-being, participatory design, and permaculture, all about nature, which is a huge connector among people. Deborah, I love that question. A couple ideas. One is definitely watch the recording of Connect Plus Cities. We did talk about some of these themes, place-based building, community design, participatory design. This is really interesting. So Canada just instituted something so that now doctors can prescribe nature to take care of health. I'm not sure if that relates to that piece, but I think there's a lot of creative ways that we can think about how how to connect and how to ensure that design is participatory. I would say definitely watch Connect Plus Cities. Stay tuned for the report because we have some specific recommendations on that. Susie, I'm curious if you have other thoughts on this question too. Well, two thoughts which come to mind. Number one is a lot of us live in existing homes and buildings So we can't reinvent this as biophilic buildings, but I think there are many ways which we could reshape these homes or how they relate to each other. Sometimes things like taking down fences between neighboring properties would be a great thing or (laughs) creating paths through properties, but also this possibility of shared initiatives. For instance, I listened a while ago to somebody who has done research on the purpose of parks, and they think it will shift from entertainment to community gardens, that more and more city parks will have a community garden aspect. And of course, this is also a huge way to nourish health, not only the social health, but also the physical health of people. So I think there's a lot of ways to be creative in the frame of what we already have and being courageous in experimenting. At Social Health Labs, we run a monthly microgrant program where we give out $1,000 each month to someone somewhere in the U.S. who has an idea to connect their community and to bring together their neighbors and build relationships locally at the very grassroots level. And the first awardee that we funded was someone who was building a community garden to bring people together around gardening and around placemaking and she's gone on to do wonderful things with that garden. So I definitely see a lot of value in that. Yeah. Maybe people want to apply for the next round of creative ideas. So Ocean says, I'm curious if there are stats on the isolation and loneliness of LGBTQ plus elders. It appears this group is experiencing higher trends. One possible reason is that as a member of the pride community, coming out is not limited to coming out early in life to family and friends. It actually is a continual process, even as an elder moving into new social groups. One has to decide to either let it slide and does not appear as their authentic self or possibly being ostracized. Are you aware of any work with this population on reducing loneliness and creating community? That's a wonderful question, Ocean. Yeah, I think what this brings up for me is that one of the drivers of loneliness can be feeling like you can't be your authentic self to those around you, right? Connection isn't just being around people. It's being around people in a way where you're showing up fully and you feel seen, heard, and validated. And so 
it makes complete sense that LGBTQ plus elders and people of all ages would be at a risk for that, you know? And that's true of anyone who feels like perhaps they're different in some way or feels like there's a part of themselves that they have to hide for whatever reason. I'm trying to think if I've come across any work specifically that's reducing loneliness in that population. Nothing's immediately coming to mind. That doesn't mean that there aren't initiatives, but just that there needs to be more. I'll think about that and see if anything comes to mind. If anybody knows data or studies which have been conducted, please share experiences. I'll just mention that I am an education ambassador for SAGE Advocacy and Services for LGBTQ Elders. And the focus is generally on working with facilities, organizations that provide services to elders and make sure that they are aware of the needs of that community. Also, putting into application forms where people can specify if they are a member of that group. Because right away, it signifies to LGBTQ people that, oh, they're kind of aware. Rather than just interrupting the conversation and saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> you should know it's already in their intake form. And they're not wondering, okay, well, if I apply to this senior living home, will I be kicked out? If someone finds out, we're still feeling a lot of barriers in terms of finding out really what works. And many times in pride centers, they also don't know. <laughs> and elders do not show up in their centers and so forth. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ocean. I think this is something you need to take charge on. <laughs> um, I, I think it also brings up the fact that, you know, solutions or approaches to reducing loneliness need to be tailored to the people they're serving. And whether that's people of different ages, of different locations, whatever it is, they really need to be specific to a, a certain community. Right now, looking at the landscape of solutions and work in this space, we haven't gotten down to that level of granularity yet. There are programs and interventions and things that are working for groups. But I think to get to that level of specificity, where we know exactly what will work for a given group of people or a person, we're just not quite there yet. Okay, so this is one for all of you. What is your recipe for social connection? Ideas that you use in your own lives or things that you see helping out. Walks around the neighborhood. Absolutely. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that, Rachel. I was going for a walk with my partner just two nights ago in our local neighborhood, and we were stopped by this couple in front of their house who said, oh, do you want some lemons? Here, here are some lemons from our tree. We've got way too many. And we ended up chatting for about 20 minutes on the sidewalk, and they've now invited us over for dinner. And this is a couple in their 80s. We're in our 30s. I just loved that you know, it can be as simple as saying hello or offering someone lemons from your yard to create that connection and to start what can potentially be a new friendship. I see Adrienne says, sweeping outside my house. Interesting. I wonder if that's for a similar reason and that it's an opportunity to open up conversation. Carrie says, finding something that you're passionate about and finding people that are passionate about that same thing and doing it together could not agree more. You know, I was saying earlier how social health and social well-being comes not just from our one-on-one -on -one relationship but also from feeling a sense of belonging to something greater. And that's where that really plays in. It's finding people who share that common purpose, and that can be this uniting force that helps you to 
to feel connected to something bigger than yourself. Mary says contact with at least one person every day, whether by email, a walk, a visit, etc. Yeah, I love that. There was a study done across Canada last year that found that people who connect with five other people each week are significantly happier than people who connect with fewer people. So something about a handful of people each week, or I like your recommendation of one person each day. And certainly the research suggests that it's kind of format agnostic. So like you said, whether it's an email, spending time together, a phone call, they can all add meaning and and help us to feel more connected. Deborah said, I'm also interested in nature ecotherapy. That seems to be a trend. Kathy says she took daffodils from her yard to her neighbor across the street yesterday. I love that. Daffodils are my favorite flowers. Mary said she offers chards from her garden to neighbors. Rachel said, sometimes it's nice to be with people doing a shared activity, but not having to be social or talk much. Yeah, totally agree with that. And this kind of brings up an interesting point, which is around whether or not we feel more introverted or extroverted. And that lends into different social preferences, right? So for me, I'm actually an an introvert. I'm very social and outgoing, but I need time alone to recharge. And that just means that what a socially healthy life looks like for me is different than what it might for one of you who might be more extroverted. So I totally agree. Understanding those preferences, Rachel, about being with people, but not necessarily having to talk. We all have different preferences and it's kind of finding people who align with ours. Question for you. Years ago, I studied sense of belonging and I'd haven't read anything in years, but from what I seem to remember, people could come in contact with a lot of people throughout the day and even have a lot of friends and have a lot of activities that they're involved with and still feel like they don't have a strong sense of belonging. And so I think what that points to is how important it is to feel like you have a meaningful role. Am I right in thinking that it's not just necessarily like surrounding ourselves with people or like going to activities, but actually engaging? I think you said that perfectly. That's my understanding of all the research literature as well, not to mention my own personal experience. It's not just about being around other people. It's how meaningfully do you feel connected to those other people? And I like what you said, Rachel, about your role. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Like, what is your role within the group? Yeah, I was thinking like, if you make a contribution to the group, then you're more likely to have a sense of belonging, which is connected to you're more likely to feel less lonely, which is kind of what I was thinking about when I asked the question about care facilities, because we do so much to try to get people in the same room to like play a game together, do something together Mm -hmm. in our attempts to make people feel connected. But I think we have to be a little bit more creative in helping people feel like they have a role or a purpose or something to contribute rather than just kind of showing up. Absolutely. That's something I see in the work I do a lot that older adults who retire and suddenly don't have that sense of meaning and purpose from their daily job and their work and that feeling of contribution. And that's compounded by the sense that we get from our society where older adults are left out to pasture and kind of are no longer useful and actually are seen as a burden. And so all of that, I mean, how can you feel meaningfully connected when not just individuals, but your entire society kind of has that mentality? That's really challenging. Your point, I completely agree with that connection and feeling a sense of contribution and agency and purpose, they're all very closely related. Definitely. 
If I may just say one other thing, I've been studying older adult development and what I've been reading about and what I believe I see in the people around me who are older, including a little bit in myself, is that our need for a lot of social connections often decreases with age. Younger adults tend to worry about older adults when they're not doing the same things that they did when they were younger. And what studies show in older adult development is that that's just a normal part of development and that we prune our social networks and become in many ways more internal and need less from the outside world. It's just really interesting to pair that with all the loneliness research and what that means for people individually and what it means for the community that like, it's okay to sit on your front porch and watch the world go by. And that doesn't mean you're depressed. I love that. There's a study I read a while back. I might not get it exactly right, but it was something like people in their 20s, the number of friends that they have predicts their happiness, whereas people in their 30s and up, it's the quality of their friends that they have that predicts their happiness. Like you're saying, kind of when we're younger, it's really important to feel like we're popular and kind of have all these different people we can reach out to. And then there's this natural pruning process that comes with getting older that is totally natural and healthy. Rita asks, can you comment on the relationship between solitude, time alone, and loneliness? Yeah, the relationship between solitude, time alone, and loneliness. So let me throw out a few definitions. Isolation, I would define as the objective state of being alone, right? So you're separate from other people, literally. Loneliness is the subjective experience of feeling alone or of feeling disconnected from other people. So they don't necessarily go hand in hand. You can be alone and not feel lonely. Time alone or solitude, I would define as, or at least how I experience, is it's isolation that I enjoy, right? It's time alone where I'm perfectly happy. And so it really comes down to this kind of subjective reaction to our circumstances. Do we enjoy being alone? Is there value in that? Or does it conjure up feelings of loneliness? And that might change depending on on our given circumstances. I actually wrote about this in my newsletter where I talked about solitude and called it an ode to solitude because I think that's really important. There was a beautiful essay in the New York Times recently about solitude and, and how important that can be. This is great to get to talk to you all, and I'm loving your questions. Deborah says a five-minute meaningful conversation can be far more important than being around people who have no real connection. Absolutely. Someone else, the outreach program in San Francisco, where neighborhood volunteers bring people together, how do they do that? Do they go knocking on doors? How do they get other people connected and get people involved? That's a great question, and I wish I had one of them here to answer it in more detail because they're the pros. But broadly speaking, yeah, there is some knocking on doors. There's also also flyers. There's also sending newsletters out and there's also technology approaches that they're taking. But yeah, it started in a a very grassroots way of literally knocking on doors and word of mouth, right? So finding out from one person that their neighbor lives alone and might be interested in the program and reaching out. It's kind of old school in that way. And I love it because we still need approaches like that. It's not going to reach everyone, but it's still meaningful. One of the problems I see or barriers that we still need to overcome in all the work that's going on to create more socially connected communities is that we don't know what we don't know in terms of there are still going to be people we're not reaching. And we don't even know that we're not reaching because that's just how isolated they are. And I don't have a good answer for how we overcome that and how we reach every single person who would benefit from some of this outreach. Would we just go to your website about 
the grants that you give out. For anyone listening in, it's at socialhealthlabs.com. You can find the link. It's our microgrant program. So that's there. And then there are many other resources. If you go to my personal website, kasleykillam.com, I've got lots of articles on this topic and links to many other fun things. So you can find more resources on both of those. Castley, thank you so much for everything today. We very much appreciated having you on. It was so much fun. Thank you. I really appreciated it as well. This was, was a lot of fun. It was really great spending time with all of you. And thank you for your comments and questions. Don't hesitate to reach out if anything else sparks your mind. Thank you, Castley. Thanks, everyone. Bye. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.